0: Okay, so the three basic processes in memory are encoding, storage, and retrieval. Uh, in this segment, uh, we'll look at encoding, the first of those. Encoding has to do with how you interact with information as it's occurring, as events are occurring, and get that information into memory to start with. Right, um, <clears throat> And uh, so this is essentially on the front end of memory. This is um, This is what we're doing as we're encountering things that we're going to want to remember later on. Right. Okay. uh, I'll go ahead and tell you that a lot of the um, strategies that are um, uh, able to help people improve their memory when they want to remember things uh, are at the encoding stage. That is, if we can figure out better ways to more deliberately and willfully encode information in better ways, then the rest of it becomes a lot easier. Then um, then it's much less uh, difficult to store information and to retrieve information later on. There are some strategies that can help with those other stages, but a lot of it um, focuses on encoding. Okay, uh, so let's talk about what encoding is. First off, encoding depends upon attention. For the most part, you're not going to remember stuff later on unless you are paying attention to it while it happened. Um, uh, So it's useful here to think of attention as a filter. That um, uh, If you think about it, at any given moment, there's a lot of things that are potentially... Uh, vying for your attention, uh, things that you could be paying attention to, a lot of sensory information coming in by your senses, and your brain decides which of that information it's going to pay attention to and which it's going to ignore. And uh, and it does that through your use of attention. So I think it's useful to think of attention as a filter, that it's uh, allowing some stuff in and other stuff not to come in, right? Um, And that's usually what we mean when we talk about focusing attention or even concentration, concentration, being able to pay attention to some particular thing, usually for a little while, um, but also being able to um, eliminate distractions uh, so that you're selectively paying attention to one uh, thing, like maybe something you're reading, and tuning out uh, stuff that you've decided isn't important to pay attention to, like background noise or something like that. So we can, f- we can focus our attention, and to some extent we can decide what goes in this filter. Uh, however, not all of our attention, uh, not all attentional processes are in- intentional. That is, we can't always decide. And we've already seen this. We saw this earlier in the semester when we looked at parts of the brain. And, um, and I told you about a basic reflex that's in our brain called an orientation reflex. Now, if you remember, the orientation reflex is the tendency for your attention to go to some immediate change that happens in your environment. So, you know, there's a loud noise, or somebody comes in the room, or, I don't know, something changes around you, and, um, and your brain tends to notice that. The human brain is tuned to notice changes in things, and that's one of the ways that we do that. So if you consider it, though, um, that's one possibility for uh, you not being able to be in control of your attention, is this orientation reflex. Something else grabs your attention, and so your attention moves to that. But at the same time, you also have this intentional part of your attention, that is, that you can decide to direct your attention to some things and others. Now, when people talk about, um, you know, say that they have trouble paying attention or uh, that they're distractible or things like that, um, I think it's useful to think about it in terms of those two aspects of attention that there's some of it that's willful and some of it that's not, that's reflexive. And essentially, in getting better at paying attention, we need to be able to train our attention, essentially to let it uh, be less likely to be drawn away by some of those um, reflexive things. I don't know, it might be helpful to think of uh, attention uh, training your attention uh, in a similar way as like training a puppy. You know, the puppy's going to wander off. That's what puppies do. Um, but you bring it back, um, you know, like you're trying to paper train the puppy or something like that. And you bring them back every time and you bring your attention back to what you want it. Uh, to come back to. And so attention, you know, is something that we can get better at. Um, And uh, so even when people have difficulties with attention, like attention deficits, um, that doesn't mean that they can't get better at attention. Um, uh, And so practicing focusing attention can be a useful thing. Now, um, since attention is a filter, uh, notice that that would mean that if something is going on in your immediate environment right now, and you don't pay attention to it, then you're probably not going to encode it. It's not going to get into your um, memory to start with. And so later on, you're not even going to remember that it happened. Um, And uh, so um, so in order to remember most stuff later on, we're going to have to pay attention to it while it happens. Um, There are some things that are so strong that they will capture our attention. And we don't have to really uh, put a lot of effort into remembering them later on. I mean, uh, a lot of effort into paying attention to them. And so then we're able to remember them later on. Um, But for the most part, you know, we've got to direct our attention. And so we're essentially deciding what's going to go into our memory. Um, This is um, uh, much more, I don't know, much more power over your own memory than most people realize that they have. Because you see, there are a lot of things in the world that Vie for your attention. Um, uh, our attention is like a puppy, and it can be drawn away very easily. And that's what a lot of um, a lot of social media is designed to do. That's what a lot of advertising is designed to do. It's essentially uh, attention candy <laughs> um, to um, uh, to lure you away from the things that you might otherwise be paying attention to. Uh, on that note, um, you know that uh, there is actually a um, uh, a. F- fairly large controversy within the field of psychology now about the fact that there have been some psychologists who sort of left psychology and went to work for uh, social media companies and video game companies uh, essentially to try to use what we know about attention and also some things about learning and reinforcement in order to essentially program social media um, video games, other things like that to suck up people's attention and, um, and essentially to make people become hooked on them. Um, uh, this is a rather creepy kind of thing if you think about it. And, uh, and like I say, it's sort of controversial, uh, in psychology, but still you got to realize that this stuff is all around you. Um, you know, uh, television, uh, images, you know, change every two seconds or something like that. And um, and it's a constant uh, barrage of uh, lights and sounds and things like that. I don't really like TV. I'm not really interested in TV. But if we were to go to a restaurant, like in the old days when you could go to restaurants, uh, and there's a TV on, I'll find my attention being drawn to that TV, even though I don't like TV, and I'm not even interested in what's on the TV. Um, uh, and so I can imagine for people who like that kind of stuff, Um, that you can really just get sucked into it. Notice that that means that somebody else is programming your attention for you, uh, not that you're doing it yourself. And so uh, being able to direct your own attention is an important thing. Um, There's some interesting phenomena related to attention. One of them is inattentional blindness. Uh, Inattentional blindness is the tendency to not see not notice uh, things that we're not expecting to see or not um, uh, not looking for at the time. Um, There's a pretty good illustration of inattentional blindness uh, that um, you can find on YouTube. Uh, I find that a lot of students have seen this already. I think think my son even told me he saw it in uh, Driver's Ed. (laughs) Um, But but it's the uh, video where you're supposed to count how many passes uh, a basketball team makes. uh, And um, uh, then you realize that while you were doing that, there was this dancing bear that went through the whole scene, and you didn't even realize it. Uh, And it's it's a pretty um uh i don't know kind of dramatic illustration i didn't believe it myself the first time i had to go back and you know replay the video because i didn't believe that i'd really missed that um it's a short video you can find it on youtube if you want uh look for um something like um awareness test uh dancing bear or something like that you can find it uh anyway um that's just a uh uh uh, an illustration, uh, a demonstration. Um, there have been actual studies that looked at uh, the phenomenon of inattentional blindness. Um, I've got a report here from a study that was done on a university campus um, in Washington, the state of Washington. Uh, and um, essentially what they did was uh, they had a graduate student put on a clown outfit and uh, He donned a purple and yellow clown costume with polka-dot sleeves, red shoes, and a bulbous red nose. And then he hopped on a unicycle and began pedaling around the square for an hour. Uh, After pedestrians crossed the square, the researchers stopped the walkers and asked, Did you see anything unusual? And what they found was that, um, that people who were using a cell phone uh, were very unlikely to remember, let's see, uh, 8%. Only 8% of those people spontaneously remembered seeing a clown. I want you to think about that for a minute. Um, they saw the clown. That is, you know, the clown on the unicycle went through their visual field, but they were so engrossed in paying attention to something else, uh, their phone conversation, that um, they didn't even notice it. It didn't even register, right? And so, um, so they were um, effectively blind to this thing um, uh, that was right there. Um, Even when they asked people, uh, did you see the unicycling clown, Um, of the uh, people talking on cell phones, only a fourth of them remembered it even then, even with that sort of leading question. They found, um, uh, there's more results here, but uh, essentially they found that people who were talking with another person or just uh, walking by themselves were much more likely to uh, report seeing um, the unicycling clown than the people we're talking on a cell phone Uh, now you know stuff like this right that essentially uh, uh, cell phones um, uh, texting uh, and things like that uh, are taking our attention and so we're missing other stuff um, there's also uh, a related phenomenon uh, called change blindness. I'm not going to talk a lot about change blindness. If you're interested, you can probably find. I'm I'm sure you can find uh, YouTube videos on that too. The um uh, the documentary series Brain Games uh, did some things on change blindness a few years ago, where they essentially changed some important aspect of a situation. And people don't even seem to notice uh, that that has changed. Like, uh, like they may be talking to a hotel clerk, and then you know they get distracted for a second, and then the hotel clerk changes to a completely different person, and the customer doesn't even seem to realize that something has changed. Now, a lot of this comes uh, uh, to the topic of. Um, multitasking, right? Um, Because essentially multitasking would be where we're able to divide our attention to more than one thing uh, and pay attention to more than one thing at once. Um, I hope that you've heard by now that um, essentially multitasking is a myth. (laughs) Um, It's not even really a thing. Because when people talk about multitasking, they talk about it as if they can divide some of their attention They can portion off their attention to several things at once. I can do this, and I can do that, and I can do the other thing at once. What research finds is that they're not actually portioning out their attention. They're switching their attention from one task to the other sequentially. So They'll spend a few moments uh, focusing on one thing, then switch, and a few moments focusing on another thing, then switch, and go a few moments focusing on another thing. Now, humans can do this to a certain extent, uh, especially if those tasks that we're doing are mundane, repetitive, predictable kinds of things. Uh, you know, you can do more than one thing at once. But notice that, um, that the difference between dividing your attention in time and also dividing and then switching your attention from time to time is an important one. The difference is that when you're, um, your attention is jumping from topic to topic, uh, at different times, there's times when you're not paying attention at all to some of those other situations, so you can miss something completely and not even know it. Uh, and um, and this is probably one of the reasons why people often think that they're good at multitasking, because so far nothing bad has happened <laughs> to them when they were not paying attention to one of those tasks. It's only when something bad happens, like you have a car wreck or you know your kid. Uh, uh, sticks of marble up his nose or something like that that you realize you really weren't paying attention to everything all the time uh, like you thought you were right so um uh, by the way a lot of these uh, studies with multitasking um, that essentially have decided that multitasking is pretty much a myth uh, use deliberately choose subjects who are good at multitasking or who say that they're good at multitasking um, Uh, And they find that even people who are uh, supposedly good at it are not. The other thing to realize about about multitasking is that um, we're more likely to make mistakes, and we're also going to end up taking more time than if we had uh, done each task individually. Uh, So that uh, that switching between tasks um, often actually eats up some of our time and makes it more likely that we're going to make mistakes. Uh, So... Don't try to be a good multitasker. Try to um, uh, be a good single tasker and pay attention to um, uh, things that you want to pay attention to when you want to pay attention to them. Okay, the next topic in, in coding is a very important uh, theory in memory uh, called levels of processing or sometimes called depth of processing theory. Um, I'm on slide number six now, by the way, Um, levels of processing theory was first proposed by Craig and Lockhart in 1972. Um, This is one of those kind of big theories that's been studied for a long time. And so there are a lot more recent studies, um, even from Craig and Lockhart, but also from other people too. And in fact, I'll tell you in a little while, some of their more recent stuff, but essentially levels of processing theory says that um, uh, more deep processing, deeper processing of information while it's occurring, that is encoding, is going to yield a stronger memory trace, so that that information is going to be easier to remember later on. Deeper processing means stronger memory. So what is meant by deeper processing? Well, Craig and Lockhart kind of uh, set out um, you know some different levels of processing, uh, going from shallow to intermediate to deep processing. And essentially what they mean is um, something about how much uh, you're actually um, working with the information as it's going in. So, for example, uh, this might be a little bit artificial at first for a first example, but uh, let's say that you're trying to remember a list of words. You're trying to memorize a list of words, and um, you look at uh, you know how long the words are, or what letters they begin with, or something like that. That's a fairly shallow level of um, Uh, of encoding um, a level of processing so you're just kind of looking at what the words look like or something if on the other hand you tried to um, uh, think about what each of the words meant uh, each of the uh, words uh, on the list as you went through you come up with the meaning of it okay this means that then you're processing it on a more deep level probably an intermediate level of processing Uh, If, on the other hand, you tried to think of uh, a mental picture of the thing in the, the items in the list, or even put them together in some way, or thought of a story with them, or even thought of the last time that you encountered that thing or something like that to relate it to your own experience, then that would be some of the deepest processing. And so essentially, um, what we do when we are initially encountering some information is going to have a lot to do with how easy it is to remember. If we can remember it more deeply, we're going to remember it um, uh, more strongly later on. Um, Some of Craig and Lockhart's more recent research in this area uh, identified the deepest level of processing that they were able to identify, and they referred to that as self-referent processing, um, meaning in some way referred to your own uh, likes and dislikes, your own experiences. So, you know, if you were trying to think of um, uh, some item, some words in a list, um, relating them to yourself somehow. Uh, I don't know, maybe if one of the words is monkey, think about it in terms of uh, when's the last time you actually saw a monkey in real life, or would you really like it if you had a monkey as a pet, or something like that, right? To relate it to your own experience, and they found that that was some of the most strong. Um. Uh. Processing. Um. Some of the deepest processing, so leading to the strongest memories. Now, a lot of uh, memory techniques uh, are to, for improving memory are going to go right to this idea of deepening processing. Um. Uh, essentially, you've probably had some experience with this. Have you ever been reading uh, a textbook, maybe, I don't know, and found that uh, your mind has wandered somewhere elsewhere, and you don't even know what you were reading, right? Uh, you're like, what was that last paragraph even about? I don't even know. Um, well... That happens to a lot of people, but that happens to everybody probably, but um, realize that that just means that you weren't uh, deeply processing that information enough. You were processing it on too shallow a level. You were just looking essentially at the surface of the letters and the surface of the features and not getting uh, a deeper level of processing. So find ways to make your processing more deep, whether that's coming up with examples of things uh, or um, even reading aloud can help with that. Uh, find some way to make your processing more deep and you can um, uh, remember the stuff more easily. There are a few ways of enriching encoding, uh, if we go to slide number seven, Uh, so enriching encoding in order to improve the strength of memory traces and ease of remembering later on. The first one I want to tell you about is elaboration. Uh, Elaboration means adding on to the amount of information that you're trying to remember. Now, at first glance, that probably doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And in fact, it may be counterintuitive. Um, But what I'm telling you is that it's actually easier to remember big chunks of information than it is to remember little chunks of information. Um, uh, So when you're elaborating on stuff, you're essentially adding to the information that you're trying to remember. But what you're adding is going to be examples or uh, images or your last experience with those things. So you are adding on to it, you're making it bigger, uh, uh, what you're uh, trying to remember. But that actually makes it easier to remember later on. Because essentially, what that's going to do is that later on, when you're trying to find that information, when you go to retrieval, it's going to be much easier to find information that you've elaborated on. Here's the thing. I think a lot of times this is exactly the opposite of what students do in order to try to Study or what students think studying is a lot of times they'll think um, that's for studying I need to memorize stuff What I need to do is just like repeat terms and definitions over and over and over again until I feel like I know them Right that by the way is a fairly shallow level of processing. Uh, you're not really interacting with it very much um, uh, and um. Uh, They'll try to uh, whittle down the information that they want to remember into the least amount of information to remember, Um, which again is exactly the opposite of what seems to work best. This is one of the reasons why I don't like to give students study guides for, um, uh, for tests, because study guides essentially are trying to whittle down the information into the least amount of information that you would have to know. And that's really not a good way of learning. It's not a good way of remembering. It doesn't really help. Um, The thing is that, okay, if you were to try to remember some term and definition, and, you know, that was all you wanted to remember, and so you repeat it over and over to yourself, uh, you may start to feel like it's in your memory, and it may be in your memory, but it's going to be really hard to find it in your memory later on because it's not really attached to anything else it's just sort of hanging out there on its own so if while later on you're taking a test or whatever trying to remember this information you just happen to stumble upon it it's like oh yeah there's that term and definition yes i guess i do know that but uh, chances are you're gonna have trouble finding it at all Whereas if you've elaborated on it, and you've thought of examples, you've thought of your last experience with the with the uh, concept or whatever, you're able to essentially trace the breadcrumbs to find the information that you're looking for. And finding that information is crucial to remembering it, right? That's the retrieval part, which uh, we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, but by elaborating on things, you can make retrieval a lot easier later on. Now, one way that you can elaborate is by using visual imagery. Uh, this is essentially the idea of forming uh, mental pictures of things. And, um, and one of the reasons that this can help is that uh, essentially by using visual imagery to enhance your memory encoding, uh, you're encoding the same information in two different ways. Uh, so that's what's meant by dual coding theory. Uh, if I were to try to remember, I don't know, just like the word monkey, um, and also have in my mind a picture of a monkey, Well, if you remember, those different kinds of information are going to be stored in different ways in the brain. And so since I've coded it redundantly, in a sense, uh, it's going to be much easier for me to find one or the other uh, than uh, either one alone, right? So visual imagery can help with um, enriching and coding. Now, visual imagery, um, uh, just thinking of a, a picture of something, uh, isn't um, all that visual imagery is about. Uh, you can improve even visual imagery. Um, for example, I don't know, uh, again, this might sound like a little bit of an artificial example, but uh, if you were trying to remember some a list of things that you needed to buy at the store, uh, maybe you've got, I don't know, eight things you need to remember at the store. Uh, you could use visual imagery to remember those eight things in a few different kinds of ways. Um, I mean, first off, you could just re- you could just get a mental picture of each of the th- items that you need to buy. That would be one way of using visual imagery. Perhaps a better way would be to um, imagine those things that you need to buy in the place where they are found in the store. So kind of their general location in the store. Okay. You know, I need to get milk. Milk is always way in the back. You got to walk past all the potato chips to get to it. Right. Um, uh, They do that on purpose. Uh, But um, uh, so I'm imagining where it is in the store, right? Even better than that, Uh, you could make some unique new image combining some of those different things on your list. So you need milk. Well, I can imagine pouring out a jug of milk onto um uh this carpeted floor and oh that's making a mess um and then uh i also need um i don't know american cheese let's imagine flinging some little pieces of american cheese onto that milk puddle right um uh and you can keep adding images to that what you've what you end up with then is a very um uh, unique image because it's probably nothing that you've ever actually seen in real life. Uh, and so that's going to help you to remember it later because it's going to be easier to find that image. It's going to stand out from other things. Um, uh, and then since it's a complex image that includes several different things, you can kind of pick it apart to be like, oh yeah, I remember the cheese was floating on the uh, milk um Uh, the lake of milk or whatever it was, right? Um, So notice um, uh, with those examples that even using visual imagery, uh, you can do it in a number of different ways in order to improve uh, memory. One last thing uh, to tell you about this is that um, uh, uh, there's a related kind of memory technique uh, that's been reported to be uh, around for a long time going back to uh, ancient times uh, called the method of loci loCI with a set which essentially just means locations or the method of places and so um, so reportedly like these Roman senators who would uh, uh, get up and speak a prepared speech that lasted four hours or something like that if you can imagine um, uh, they would memorize their speech by associating parts of it with different parts along their route as they normally walked, or something like that, so that they would associate. And then, when they were going through the speech, they would um, essentially mentally walk themselves through that route and remember uh, the associations of um, uh, of each of those places, right? And they were able to remember quite a bit with that. So that's using some visual imagery uh, and you know some locations too, but uh, to enrich encoding.